TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favorite caveman, Brett Hill. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Brett Hill, and this week I'm joined by Dr. Mark Bubbs. He's a board-certified naturopathic doctor, author, and speaker. He's, he does sports nutrition for the Canadian men's basketball team, and he's a strength coach. He's been working with athletes, active people, and those striving to improve their health for over a decade, and he's passionate that diet, exercise, and lifestyle are the most powerful tools for improving your overall health. He's written a book called The Paleo Project, The 21st Century Guide to Looking Leaner, Getting Stronger, and Living Longer, which all sounds fantastic. So welcome to the show, Dr. Mark Bubbs. Thanks, Brett. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on board, mate. We were just commenting you being from Toronto. You've got the great Canadian accent, a bit like my co-host on The Wellness Guys, Lawrence Tam. So um, I'm excited to chat to you. I've, I've got so many friends down here in Australia who are Canadians, who are health and wellness practitioners. They all seem to like migrating down this way. So I, I feel like I'm speaking to an old friend already, Mark. Well, that's the thing. All that vitamin D research is coming out over here. So I guess all the Canadians have figured, well, since we don't get any from November to April, you're best off just to move somewhere where you get it all year long, right? Nice. I like the sound of that. Well, you have to come down at least for a speaking gig or something, right, Mark? Just, you know, come come visit down under one time. But, you know, we should, before we start booking in gigs, we should get into your story. And, um, you know, you, you are, you're a naturopath, you know, speaker, strength coach you know it, it seems like a really cool combination um when you're talking about you know looking at a holistic view of health how did you get into it yeah i mean effectively growing up i mean i played a lot of sports and you know it was quite uh, training quite intensely and you know being more of a natural ectomorph build as i get towards the late high school years it's all about you know increasing caloric intake and throwing lots of whey proteins and dairies and breads and all these things to help you know add some mass and some size and of course you know from that just ended up getting sick, constant colds and flus and catching all sorts of viruses. Um, and then I had a run-in where, you know, getting into go see the doctors repeatedly and they couldn't quite figure out. I'd gotten quite uh, run down. Um, and this went on for a few months in my last year of, of high school, which is, of course, a big year in terms of sport. Um, so I was amazed. I, a friend of our, mine told me to go check out this naturopath, which, you know, this is the mid-90s now. So even back then, that was I had no idea who this person was. And I was amazed within a couple of weeks, you know, this, this guy had told me to cut out certain foods and, and, and increase other foods. And in a matter of weeks, you know, I'd gone from potentially needing multiple surgeries to feeling almost hundred percent like myself again. So that kind of cued me into this idea of, of what you eat and how you move and these lifestyle factors being com- key components of, of health. And so my journey into going into medicine, that's where I you know, I went to UBC out in Vancouver, um, you know, had ideas of going into traditional medicine and it just, you know, didn't resonate enough with me in terms of going into, you know, helping people with more chronic diseases. I mean, we're so amazing at acute and emergent care with with amazing technologies we have in medicine, but it's amazing how we just drop the ball with things like chronic disease management and trying to just patch people up. So, so that sort of led me down this journey to um, uh, to using exercise and nutrition and and whatnot to to work in terms of sport, but also in terms of regular folk in my practice who are just trying to you know improve their blood sugars, lose a bit of weight, and improve energy levels. So what was that first part of the journey for you, Mark? The naturopath obviously suggested to you cutting some things out, adding some things in. What, what were their tips to you that, that made the big difference for you right at the start? Well, this was my early exposure to things like, um, you know, myself being sensitive to, to dairies and whatnot and just, 
you know, like a lot of athletes even today, and this is all the way up in the professional ranks, you know, guys will think it's normal to be passing wind all day long. And of course, when I was young, I didn't think any differently. Lots of mucus, lots of congestion. And by removing the food, it was almost instantaneous, um, the improvements, as well as uh, the breads. The breads were another really big one. Um, you know, uh, grains and glutens in particular can be more catarls. They do create more of an environment where there is more mucus and phlegm. And that doesn't mean that everyone has to um, not consume them. But it is amazing how, you know, we see today in a lot of the research and definitely for me back then, taking those foods out um, was a major driver in terms of allowing my digestive system to reboot. And of course, digestion is really that engine for the system in terms of whether you're trying to improve overall health or definitely in terms of athletic performance. It's difficult to perform really well when, you're, when your body's struggling to assimilate nutrients. And of course, your immune system's just overtaxed. So what about what to add in? Obviously, you've sort of spoken there about you know taking out some of the grains and the sugars and those sort of things. What did they have you taking in? Were you on uh, just was it just diet? Was it nutritional supplements? What what were you doing? Well, this was just part of the journey, and of course, you know, at that time, this was the mid to late nineties, and and you know, the paleo diet hadn't even really sprung to life yet. So at that time, a lot of people were going in terms of the vegan route. And of course, you know, that was one of the reasons why I saw benefit was because I removed some of these offending foods. And of course, I felt better. Um, but as as university went on and whatnot, that, that those improvements started to wax and wane. And again, these ideas of fatigue and, and not feeling my best. And that's when I started, you know, reading more about uh, Dr. Cordain's work and the paleo diet. And this, again, in clinical practice, I mean, having a strict definition of a diet, I, I, I abstain from that with my clients. But this, the general themes and tenets here where we're having these nutrient-dense uh, animal proteins, especially when we're looking to more sustainable, regenerative things like grass-fed uh, meats and wild game meats, um, all these healthy fats. And I think a lot of the buzz around even the, the, um, the popularity of even a paleo-based diet is the fact that, you know, the conversation around saturated fats, which used to be the boogeyman for decades and decades, you know, we now... You know, it's really clear in the research that they're they're not the thing that's leading to cardiovascular disease. And of course, you know, on the athletic side, things like saturated fats was a big part of the solution for me. Uh, adding things in like uh, I couldn't do the butter, but adding things in like ghee and duck fats and coconut oils, etc., was a big part of um, recovery. Uh, we see even today, you know, in terms of elite level athletes, if you train intensely for and push into that, you know. We're always trying to strive for that overreaching, just pushing athletes beyond their bounds. But of course, it's very easily, very easy at an elite level to push into overtraining. And of course, when you see athletes in that realm, uh, you'll typically see you know low cortisol levels, low testosterone levels, etc. And of course, adding in more fats into the diet, in particular saturated fats, is a sort of a key area to help um, restore those levels, cortisol, testosterone, and of course, improve recovery performance, etc. So those are some of the main things. I mean, things like even in clinical practice, when I started up at um, naturopathic school, I mean, people who were following this type of eating were eating vegetables for breakfast. I had people eating broccoli and asparagus for breakfast. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, my vegetarian clients don't even eat broccoli for breakfast. So what the heck is going on with this diet that has everyone eating all these really nutrient dense foods um, so much of the day? So that, that really sprung to life. And of course, you know, in, in clinical practice, seeing it in action has really been a beneficial, uh, you know, whether people are struggling with um, degenerative uh, joint conditions, whether it's digestive issues, whether it's especially things like, um, you know, metabolic syndrome or, or, or blood glucose, di prediabetes issues. It's really been a nice uh, ph phenomenal foundation for people. But of course, we always tailor it to then suit the individual needs of whoever's, whoever's in front of us. Yeah, nice. So, 
Mike, you've worked quite a bit with some sporting teams and some elite sporting teams, you know, the, the national basketball team. Um, how do you find this sort of information is perceived in the elite sporting world? Yeah, I mean, I work for the uh, for Canada Basketball, so our, our national team, our Olympic team, all the way down to, you know, when we first identify players at 13 years old. And, of course, you know, now in terms of, I think, labels are things that tend to throw people off. You know, when we get into these sort of diet wars of of, 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 of labeling diets, you know, for some people it can be very motivating, and that's a great thing, and we can galvanize that and run with it. But for some people, um, it can also, you know, lead to questions or presumptions. So it's ironic when you, when you, broach the question of things like even protein intake which is you know massively important for all people and athletes in particular um you know especially even things like injury we see you know 2.4 grams per kilogram body weight is key to consume to help accelerate recovery from injury but most athletes in particular you know basketball players will tend to be longer leaner ectomorph types who tend to undereat. and of course if you get injured and these are guys who are playing professionally etc nba um you know they won't tend to eat that amount of protein in a sitting so it's it's some of these checks and balances that are really uh, important to be uh, to be ensuring that we're getting adequate intake of um so of course protein not being the only thing you know various uh, fats veggies leafy greens you know all these things the nutrient-dense foods and as we get into athletes who do need more of a heavier carbohydrate consumption because you know one of the misnomers i mean a paleo diet fits really nicely with a low carb approach a low carb high fat diet which you know again is phenomenal for you know weight loss um and correcting blood sugar dysfunctions but when you have athletes who already run really lean like our guys are coming in off an off season might be six or seven percent body fat so they're already uh that's after they relax and unwind um you know this is where some of the gluten-free uh carbohydrates can be a real bonus for us and again, some of the guys don't react so much that they can have some, but we're really trying. What we really noticed is that guys who were doing the toast for breakfast and the granola bar snack and the sandwich for lunch and the pasta for dinner, uh, we were picking up a lot of things on that digestive and immune front that were, uh, you know, adverse for for performance and health. Yeah, it's really interesting actually because that's a question that I guess asked a lot. Um, you know, we just had uh, Jimmy Moore come to Adelaide and do a talk for us, which was fantastic, and obviously he was talking all about you know low carb uh, paleo and fasting and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, a lot of people sort of asking there, you know, I had a couple of guys who are at my CrossFit gym saying, well, how does that work if you're, you know, one of the guys I was talking to, you know, he works 12 hours a day doing tree lopping and then he does CrossFit after work and, and you know, so he has a, a lot of effort and intensity during his day. You know, for someone like that, you know, how, how do they balance out this low carb approach versus, you know, wanting some, some carbohydrate to fuel some of those intense activities, you know? How, is, there a, is there a good way of people being able to figure out for themselves where they need to be on that spectrum? Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy for us to lose context, and context really matters, right? When, you know, we're up to two-thirds of the population in all, pretty much all Western countries that are overweight or obese and have dyslipidemias in North America or America, you know, one out of two people have prediabetes or diabetes. So all of a sudden, we say, well, a great approach for them is to reduce carbohydrate, but now it seems to then percolate across the rest of the population. So when you've got guys, like you mentioned there, who really pushing the envelope in terms of being busy if they're lean if they have good um insulin sensitivity i mean carbohydrates are are essential for performance um you know even when we look at a lot of the longer endurance type guys and some of these studies around ketogenic diets and and performance i mean once you get you know the the results that you're seeing in a lot of those studies are all at 65 70 percent maximum heart rate right i mean no one's ever won an olympic medal at that uh at that 
intensity and until they start an event where you just keep running until everyone falls over you know (laughs) so so this is where you need to have a balanced approach just if you think of everything as a tool then you can you don't have to be married to sort of a a particular way of life so to speak so i mean i think that's a great point that you made because guys like that i mean consuming carbohydrate after training is obviously being shuttled directly into muscles in terms of replenishing glycogen stores which then helps to offset you know training induced increases in cortisol and stress so you know, it's all about finding that right approach for the for the person. And I always tell clients, like, you really want to be clear with your goals. Like, is your goal to be leaner? Uh, is your goal to improve your health? Is your goal to perform your best? Because, you know, sometimes those goals will travel in the same direction. But the more elite you get or the leaner you want to get, those goals don't always travel in the same direction. And so you got to be figure out exactly kind of where you, where you what you're gunning for. Yeah, I like that. That's such a good point. And so, for people like that, if if they are, you know, a bit more active or, you know, wanting to, to get elite performance, you know, in terms of introducing, you know, you said gluten-free carbohydrates, what sort of stuff do you recommend to them to add into their diet to try and get some of those carbohydrates in a healthy way? The typical sort of um, paleo staples are all the root vegetables and tubers, and those are those are great nutrient-dense ways. So your yams, sweet potatoes, yucca roots, parsnips, carrots, beets, all these types of things. Um, you know, one of the ways in which... You know, I've sort of differed or, you know, the reason why the book's called Project is this idea of individualization. Um, and so things, you know, if, if a food doesn't elicit a digestive problem or doesn't elicit an adverse immune response, um, you know, things like white rice or even for some, you know, brown rice, short grain brown rice, that type of thing. Um, lentils with various athletes, lentils can be phenomenal. You know, you this, even if you're following a lower carb approach, I mean, the you know, the, the amount of effective carbs, when you take away, let's say, a, you have a half cup of lentils, you've got 20 grams of carbs, but you also get 10 grams of fiber. So that difference between those two also impacts. So so find, nailing down the right type for people, things like quinoa for some can be really nice, for others can maybe struggle a little bit. Uh, oats even um, at times can be, uh, for some can be another great sort of gluten-free option. And of course, that one gets confusing because typically oats are made in facilities that contain a bit of gluten. Um, so if you're celiac, then obviously the even molecular amounts of gluten will, will elicit a response. But for people who are just trying to minimize, it's not uh, not to be concerned with. So, you know, kind of rounding out your repertoire there and then just figuring out, I always try to get people to work from the exercise outwards uh, in terms of when they're starting to add more carbohydrate in. And, and you're very right in the sense of, you know, the more elite you are, you know, carbohydrate, you know, exercise intensity is typically directly proportional to glycogen status. So we definitely want to make sure athletes have fully topped up in terms of their glycogen status before uh, any events, CrossFit games or, um, you know, 10K runs, whatever people are doing. Yeah, nice. And, and, you know, I know from reading um, the paleo diet for athletes, for example, one of the things they spoke about doing was perhaps doing a little bit more lower carb, you know, when you're doing your training perhaps. And then, you know, on the day of an event, you might want to go a little bit more higher carb just to really sort of fuel your optimal performance on that day is that the sort of thing you would recommend as well i mean this is a really cool you know this what we call like a sleep low or train low strategy where you you train intensely and then you don't provide carbohydrate which you know classically would have been viewed you know people would be gasping thinking oh my gosh what are you doing um but this is really cool because even if you are staunchly in this kind of low carb keto camp um the people who are in the traditional camp are even seeing benefit in terms of applying again this tool of reducing carbohydrate intake and seeing an increased adaptation to fat metabolism uh, and therefore um, performance and and physical capacity so um, the interesting thing in a lot of the studies is that those benefits those metabolic shifts tend to happen in the first four weeks Um, and i know there's back and forth between the two camps in terms of you know whether long-term you know let's say keto followers believe it's the diet that's eliciting the 
the the benefits in terms of how they perform whereas you know some exercise physiologists would argue that that's actually just the training adaptations in terms of what they're doing so you know what i've seen so far is about that, that four week mark is kind of that magic that magic point so you can definitely use it in terms of um and even talking to some of our experts here at the canada institute for sport i mean even using it certain days of the week you know reducing in various days of the week depending on again like you mentioned your your training load that day or what training phase that you're in all right so um your book obviously is about more than just the food as well you know when you're looking at athletes it's really important to start looking at the rest of their lifestyle too obviously how much they train is a huge part of that but also you know rest and stress and all those other things you know how do you incorporate all those other facets into training these athletes yeah, I mean, regardless of whether we're working with someone who's just trying to improve their health or someone who's an elite level athlete, I mean, what we, you know, having, you know, the, the ideal diet or, or the most ideal diet for someone really helps to set the table for, you know, in the second section of my book there, we talk about hacking your health, these areas of health that are key for whether you're trying to um, have great energy, perform well at work and have, you know, lots of time and be um, sharp and, and, and energetic for the family, or if you're trying to perform elitely. And this is, you know, things like digestion, okay, which is, again, I call the athlete's engine. It's the roots of everything. If the digestive system isn't functioning well, right, if we're an athlete, we're pouring in tons and tons of sugars, which we see with, you know, with endurance athletes especially, it can really shift the balance of bacteria in the gut, what we call the microbiome, and that has major impacts on health. And we just saw last year, there's a study called the Israel study, which came out regarding the glycemic index and how, you know, for those listening, if they're not familiar, the glycemic index um, – you know, of a food is essentially if you have a low glycemic response, you get a, a consistently low response in the blood to blood sugars, moderate, and then of course a high, which is typically seen as adverse. And the really cool thing with this study is that um, the balance of bacteria in the gut changed the glycemic response to exactly the same foods in the individual. So you had 800 people in the study, and we had very, very different impacts in terms of the foods that they were eating. So, you know, if you're trying to lose weight, that plays a major role because if you're holding on to too much belly fat, we know from the research that there's going to be dysbiosis. So there's going to be too much bad bacteria. There's going to be inflammation. And those things trigger, you know, cravings and, of course, adversely affect, you know, your blood sugars, which makes it tough to lose weight. And, of course, on the flip side, if you're an athlete, then, you know, the stress that you could induce from endurance-type training or even just from, you know, lifting weights, CrossFit, or if you're a team sport athlete, we've got to make sure that foods that are going in aren't aggravating the system. And, of course, you're putting enough in to keep that that digestive engine running smoothly. And then, you know, that dovetails into your immune system, which, you know, 70 to 80% is in your gut. So if your gut's not running well, you could be pre more predisposed to um, colds and flus. And of course, you know, we just had the Olympics. There's nothing more, you know, more frustrating than if you've trained up for a year for a competition, let alone the Olympics for four years, and all of a sudden you catch a nasty cold or flu, you know, days before your event. There's not, you know, a heck of a lot you can do there. So those things all tie in. Inflammation is a massive one, you know, for the average folk, that systemic inflammation, that whole body inflammation, which increases your risks of all types of chronic diseases. And of course, for the athlete, it's just these nagging injuries, right? The shoulder, the knee, the elbow, things that, you know, if we get the right types of foods in, we can really help to accelerate recovery um, and prevent some of these uh, chronic um, joint and uh, muscle issues. And so what about stress, Mark? Like, you know, I know a lot of the athletes, you know, in Australia, you know, Australian rules footballers, 
you know, you hear them talking and, and many of them, you hear them talking about vomiting before a game because they're so on edge. They're so anxious about their performance. Um, you know, so I think stress management for an athlete must be a huge factor in this. You know, as you said, links in with inflammation. It links in with the whole stress response in your body, adrenaline, cortisol, all of that stuff. You know, how do we manage that with athletes? Well, that's an interesting one because, I mean, when you talk about pregame, you know, being nervous and, and, and throwing up, I mean, that's, you know, typically athletes will be pretty good at, at dialing into that sympathetic nervous system, that fight or flight mode, which is, you know, great for training hard. And if you're, you know, just working at a desk or a type A personality, then you typically have more of that sympathetic drive. The tricky part, though, is that if you're constantly stuck in this, you know, go, go, go mode, you're, you're effectively sort of pushing the gas pedal down in your car and you, you know, it's very easy to burn out the engine. So, if guys or gals aren't doing enough on the recovery side, um, and even the recovery title is just there's so many different variables that go into what you could be doing when you're actually recovering versus just sort of sitting on the couch or sitting in an ice bath. Um, but I think now more and more we're seeing this idea of, of you know training efficiently and smartly versus just the old school idea of we just kind of you know run through the wall as hard as we can and keep doing it over and over again until we're the strongest person in the room. Um, and it's tough to it's tough to shift over and we just just today, something came out around the NBA, and they had, um, you know, on back-to-back games when you're on the road, there was a three and a half times increased risk of injury. And so, at the very same time that this information comes out, which is all the sports scientists gathering this, you know, with all sorts of like we use at Canada Basketball, all sorts of various uh, technologies, um, the league issued a, you know, a statement saying that they're concerned about the amount of games that star players take off and rest, right? So you, you sort of have these <laughs> these opposing agendas in terms of how do we keep the athletes healthy enough to perform at their best, but at the same time, if we're if we're putting them out there for for too many games or you know things like even Premiership football or Champions League, when you look at the soccer, I mean they play so many games in a year. Um, yeah. If you yeah. flip through the news any day, I mean hamstring injury rates are just through the roof and. Uh, you know, everyone seemingly is scratching their head, but I know a lot of experts in the field are just uh, this amount. What you you know what you speak of there in terms of just the amount of stress on the body, the nervous system stress, it can all predispose to you know getting sick, getting run down, but even at worst injury. And now you're losing elite athletes for a significant period of time. So, Mark, what does it look like then when someone comes in to see you in practice, or perhaps they start following the the programs in your book? You know, where do they start? Yeah, I mean, when when I when I work with patients one to one in clinic, I mean. We sit down and it doesn't matter, again, if they have uh, dyslipidemia or prediabetes or if someone's coming in to, uh, to work on, uh, you know, improving their performance in a various sport. You know, we go through diet top to bottom. Uh, we go through their movement. We go through digestion and sleep and all these areas of health because we've got to get a real picture of that person. Um, again, in acute or emergent medicine, we can try to whittle things down uh, and, and ca- really categorize people. But in terms of... Um, you know, preventative medicine or really having this more integrative functional approach, we've got to get the complete story, right? Um, so that's what we do in terms of the book. There's a bunch of uh, self-assessments there for digestion and immunity, inflammation, and you talk uh, stress there. We have a chapter on cortisol and, of course, insulin. And that helps people identify, like, where are these gaps? Where are these imbalances? And then from there, you know, it's, it's amazing that, you know, for me as a physician seeing working in primary care, you know, diet, exercise, and lifestyle – all the major medical journals will tell you is 90% of chronic disease. And of course, mm. at all medical schools, we give you know almost 0% of the education in those three things. So, so how, you know, the protocols will typically revolve around those things. And of course, we can use supplementation or even medication 
uh, when we need it for for people who are just trying to bump up their health. And the same thing goes for athletes in terms of you know the more elite you're performing, this is when you know supplementation in various forms can become a little bit more. Uh, important, especially things, you know, where we live in Canada, vitamin D in the wintertime. I mean, it's the implications, it's acting more as a pro hormone. So the implications for performance are really growing uh, things like testosterone, not just immunity. Um, so that's where plugging the gaps and finding out, um, you know, the more elite you are, it's not enough to really just sort of take them, say a multivitamin or something. I mean, if you're eating well, you're likely getting a lot of those coverage there, but it's where are the big, where are the big gaps in the system that we can then help to uh, to support and, and then you know improve recovery and performance from there so what are the big things you think you're, you're coming across most often obviously vitamin d is the big one you've mentioned but in terms of deficiencies in people's diet and deficiencies in terms of what they're getting in that you need to supplement for what are the most common ones that you see that you need to supplement for well if we take back and just look at common themes i mean the common themes amongst the general population is that we're consuming far too much sugar in the general diet, right, we're up to 160 pounds per person per year, whereas 100 years ago it was 40 pounds. Um, you know, the balance of, ome- of of essential fats in the diet. In a Western diet, we get just a tonnage of omega sixes and very little omega threes, um, and so that contributes to you know, the adverse health. Uh, we also get what's called the hyperpalatability of foods, right? We have all these snack foods that are uh, really Moorish, and people want. People can't stop eating them because you effectively have, you know, engineers and scientists who sit down and figure out, well, how do we make this food taste so incredible and stimulate the brain to make people want to consume more? And so you end up with this dramatic caloric excess in the general environment. And of course, it's a massively calorically dense diet and it's really nutrient dense, which is, you know, sounds in juxtaposition. Um, so those are kind of the themes. So you see a lot of blood sugar issues. You see people with low mood. We see the first you know, studies showing that if you have poor blood sugars, it's going to lead to low mood. And a recent study showed that well, low mood will lead to worse than blood sugars, and no one knows it's a chicken or the egg thing. So which which one started it all? So those are things themes that we see. Low testosterone levels. I work with a lot of men in, in clinical practice. You know, guys forty to 60, 65, 70. and low testosterone is on you know massively on the rise. And of course. In a truly sort of allopathic, we just treat the symptoms. If a is low testosterone, we give you the cream or the gel or the pill. Guy feels great for four or eight weeks, and then 12 or 16 weeks later, he's back in the office and feels worse than where he began. And of course, the issue with that is that we're not addressing, we're just treating the smoke, right? We're just treating the symptoms and not sort of the root cause. And this is where, you know, for men, if, you, if you've got belly fat, if, you're, if your insulin levels are elevated, then you're you're, you're going to be making less testosterone. If your cortisol levels are elevated, testosterone goes down. If you're holding on to belly fat, right, we aromatize. Um, the aromatization of testosterone turns into estrogen, so you're losing testosterone that way. Lack of sleep. Right? The average person gets about six and a half hours. That's another way. So these are all ways that we don't – we almost miss out on all these sort of simple things, and we try to treat people with the, you know, what I call like the shiny new toy, all the exotic stuff. So those are dead simple ways in terms of – um, the, the themes in which affect people and of course you know diet exercise and lifestyle will really impact those if we want to be real specific around you know supplementation where do i sort of start you know gut health is so fundamental to everything that when we run panels um csa panels you can run tests where you're measuring levels of good and bad bacteria and presence of yeasts and 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 etc um bad bacteria is you know dysbiosis is sort of rampant so it's amazing how that's typically a first place to start is adding more of these good bacteria or probiotic in and of course the other one is you know omega-3s we just unfortunately just don't get enough uh in the diet 
or you know we also overconsume the omega sixes. So that's that's an area for general health. I'd say in terms of the athletic side of things, vitamin D is definitely one of them. Um, things like zinc and magnesium are also really key. Although those again are ones that you want to. Sometimes we end up supplementing first, and we don't go back through the athlete's diet and say, you know what, you're low in B12, but you very rarely eat any you know red red meats or wild game meats, etc. So it's you know if you're a coach out there as well, it's always good to. Uh, do your due diligence and go back through everything. Why is your athlete low in magnesium? What's their intake of, of leafy greens? What's their intake of fish? What are, what can we do? Because um, it's nice to use supplements as that stopgap, especially when we're getting into peaking for, for competition. But if you've got an athlete who's always having to supplement with something throughout the 12 months of the year, then you've got to start to ask yourself why that is. And of course, you know, for me, that's one of the reasons why this sort of paleo-based approach is really effective is because it tends to really fill up those gaps. I love it, Mark. So much great information. Um, I know, have no doubt that people listening are going to want to find out more about you. Um, so obviously, they can head to your website, which is drbubs.com. That's D-R-B-U-B-B-S.com. Uh, they can find you all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at drbubs. Um, and of course, the book, which you've spoken about so much, you know, such a comprehensive guide to everything I need to know about paleo and the paleo lifestyle, not just the diet. Uh, is the Paleo Project, the 21st century guide to looking leaner, getting stronger, and living longer. So that's brilliant, Mark. Thank you so much for your time today. It's been a fascinating interview. Thanks a lot, Brett. Appreciate you having me on, and uh, hopefully I'll, uh, I'll get out there to Australia sometime soon. Well, let me know when you're coming, mate. That'll be great. Sounds great, buddy. Appreciate it. Cheers. So until next week, join the conversation on Facebook. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com, and let's help grow the Paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on that paleo show this has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com check us out on facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch subscribe to each show on itunes and check us out on twitter the wellness couch streaming wellness into your lives Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.